1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm hostin- hosting Aiden Smith, author of Gender, Heteronormativity, and the American Presidency, which was recently published by Rutledge Press. This is a fascinating analysis of the way that we understand images and masculinity, especially as it is communicated to us through presidential campaigns and political rhetoric and images. Smith explores the idea of heteronormativity within our implicit and explicit conceptions of the American presidency." thus focusing not only on how masculinity is deployed to create particular images of candidates running for office, but also how femininity is used for both first ladies and for female candidates who must negotiate an even more complicated set of expectations, given our 200-year history with the occupants of the White House and the role of patriarchy in the forms and contours of that office, but I'm going to let Aiden dive into all this as we discuss her new book, "Gender, Heteronormativity, and the American Presidency." I would like to welcome Aiden Smith to the New Books in Political Science podcast, and I'd like to ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project.
0: Well, thank you, Lily, and uh, I'm I'm glad to to be um, able to talk about the book. You know, it's um, My background is in American studies and uh, mass communications, and um, I've sort of really always been drawn to thinking about the presidency from a rhetorical point of view. you know, from a, I remember the presidency or the campaigns of 1984 and being really interested, even as a child, with this um, representation of the ad, like the adversarial position between Mondale and Reagan. And when I started thinking about why I was drawn to that, it was because of the sort of narrative representation of these two um democrat republican how are we thinking about them um, in juxtaposition to one another and um as i approached my studies and and really became drawn to gender studies um thinking about how gender is this invisible um force that shapes the way that we think about things and shapes the way that we live our day-to-day experience um and how it's never really talked about um, in terms of how we make decisions about the leader of our nation. And, you know, we, we certainly saw um, more of that with um, Clint- Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign in 2008 and 2016, but only in looking at what it meant to have a woman pursuing the presidency in a meaningful and possible way. Um, rarely did we ever look at what it meant for the men that were pursuing uh, the White House and the way that masculinity either worked for or against them. And again, these sort of what we think of as tropes of appropriate masculinity. Um, The book came about sort of um, as I was starting working on my dissertation as a graduate student in 2008 – Um, I did my PhD at the University of Hawaii, and um, there was all of this discussion about this guy named Barack Obama (laughs) that no one had ever heard of. Who was from Hawaii. Um, He was from Hawaii, and his mother was um, an anthropologist, I believe, at the University of Hawaii. And so I remember, I would say it was probably 2006. Um, you know, as Hillary Clinton before she had declared, but, you know, seemed to be the the anointed one, like what this would mean. And some colleagues of mine at UH said, well, you know, Obama's going to run. I had no idea who the man was, had never heard of him, much like um, many folks in the country at that time. And this idea that there was a young African-American um, and for for us in Hawaii, this Hawaiian-born guy who really had the chance to um, to 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 make the presidency, and I I'll be honest, at the time I thought there's no way, there's really no way that that could possibly happen. Hillary Clinton is the next in line, you know. Again, the way that, that many people did think of that, and you know, we we know what what became of that. And so that really my position. Um, in, in thinking about gender in thinking about place and region and, and seeing the way that Obama used masculinity and, and, um and of course the, the intersection intersecting, like his intersecting identity um, as an African-American and as the son of an immigrant, um, how he was able to use um tropes of masculinity to really, Position himself well um, and obviously victoriously throughout the race, not only during the primary, but um, in his in his contest with um, with John McCain in the in the general. And so that's sort of where I came to to really be thinking about how he he was able to do that. And going back to my, you know, my childhood sort of interest in these races, not as a political scientist, but as somebody who consumes media and thinking about that. And when I sort of had identified what I was looking for, I, I began to see it um, over and over again. And, and I think it, it certainly, some of the things that I talk about um, came about in 2016 as well. So, so that's the genesis of the project.
1: Okay. Um, and so I want to ask you, you know, sort of the broad, the broad shape of the project. And, and, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting in your, in your writing and in your research. And, and, you know, I, we're all watching the Olympics now cheering on various, um, you know, athletes, but I kept sort of cheering on as I was reading your book in a kind of way, like, somebody is actually writing this, somebody is actually talking about this. So please talk to me and our listeners about these kind of expectations that we have that we're not even aware of with regard to who is running for the presidency, how they look, how they act, how they're positioned. Um, And, you know, we expect certain things that we're not even aware that we expect. And that's really what I found your book to highlight um, and to sort of get at what we're seeing and what we're consuming and what we um, understand as a result of that.
0: Sure, yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to thinking about gender and that that word we tend to say okay now we 're talking about women when we say gender we 're talking about women, but in actuality, what gender is is a sh- is a way of being in the world that is intelligible to the culture that that we 're within for both men and women, and you know we 're now entering a stage where we 're talking about about non binary gendered folks, but But historically, we're really talking about the way that men should be and the way that women should be, such to the point that it is largely invisible, I think, Um, that we don't need to be told what manhood looks like and we don't need to be told what womanhood looks like. And so for those candidates vying for the presidency, they have made every effort largely to demonstrate that they conform to The way a man should be. And I think that that um, goes from both successes in business, uh, successes on the military field, successes as um, as a father and as a husband. And um, and, you know, yes, there's certainly a physicality to it. We expect our men to be tall and uh, physically attractive and and all of those things that we know um, smooth, smooth the way for for individuals pursuing any kind of um, leadership role, whether in business or on the playing field or or in the military, as I said, but um, so much so that um, these expectations, I believe, really limit those individuals who would even consider pursuing the office. So if I were to say to a lay person, what does a presidential candidate look like? Given the history of the office in the United States, um, we would certainly use the male pronoun. We would say, well, he probably went to an Ivy League school and he probably has a wife and he probably has children and he probably has a resume that demonstrates success. um, And and that can look like different things, whether or not we're talking about um, electoral success. uh, You know, those folks who've come up through a governorship or through the Senate or, for instance, Donald Trump, you know, he had never held uh, an elected office, but he has success in the boardroom. He was a a television star, right? That there's this idea that he's, he's demonstrated his prowess in his chosen field. And, um, and a lot of that gives them the credibility to run. Um, What we see for women pursuing office, of course, is that same level of expectation that, that she would have had success um, in her chosen field. When we think about folks like Carly Fiorina, um, or Sarah Palin, of course, vice presidency, but but Hillary Clinton as well. Here's some electoral. She was elected senator. She served as secretary of state, um, but also demonstrating how she would have conformed to expectations within the family space where women have been um, historically placed given this idea of the separate spheres that men are um, expected to be successful outside of the home um, women ex- historically expected to be successful within the home in the domestic space and so um, so we see our, our women candidates you know demonstrating their credentials in that place as well their their mothers their wives um, and so um, I think I what I really want to hope that people take away from the book is, is, is this, these tropes that are so ingrained into our expectations are not natural. They're not, they don't just happen. <laughs> and, um, and that, you know, people really both men and women when they're running for for this office really need to be able to demonstrate their successes in their appropriate gender performance, whether or not it's Hillary Clinton, um, talking about being a grandmother as the most important role in her life, or whether or not it's um, Barack Obama talking about his role as a father, um, or even going back to um, Richard Nixon and the checker speech and t- defending his family um, and their financial assets and and his you know. Um, this idea of him defending some campaign spending as being part of of what a father does to protect his family and and referring to Pat Nixon's good Republican cloth coat. So I think you know much uh, these 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 notions and tropes have always been with us. They're so ingrained that we don't see them, and I really want folks to see them. so.
1: And so my, my follow-up question to that is you go through and you explain some of these tropes. Um, and, and that also gets to your argument with regard to heteronormativity, which it, I also want to talk about, but you talk about you know sort of these military expectations or boardroom expectations, um, or you know the the sort of expectations of fatherhood or motherhood, um, but where did they come from? Because some of what you get into is also like the form of the office itself, um, and and the kind of hallmarks of it that are inevitably going to then possibly push on our expectations in this regard. Right.
0: So, I mean, I think that we we think of the presidency, and you know, we we see this sort of synonym as like the commander in chief, right? So, um, you know, whether or not we're looking at um, the actual. Ability of the office, right? That this is the commander in chief of the armed forces and, and he has the, the power and the ability to command the military. We also look at those people who've occupied the office, whether or not it was George Washington, this founding father who, um, you know, was the, the hero of the American Revolution. We see Ulysses S. Grant come into that space. Um, we see Dwight Eisenhower. We have this idea that a, a general, um, who has converted battlefield leadership into political power um, as as the norm, right? This is what it looks like, and this is what we want. Now, we, we've we seen some changes in that in the last um, 40, 30 years on what that looks like, but we still see those candidates vying for, um, for the office based on their military experience, whether or not that be... Um, Jimmy Carter as a Naval Submariner, uh, John Kerry as a Vietnam era veteran, John McCain as a, as a Vietnam veteran, not always successful, certainly, but using this idea that I have the capacity and the credentials to lead this nation because I am a military leader or because I have, um, I've, I've almost earned that right to pursue this office based on my service to the nation, uh, in the armed forces. Um, we know that that's up until very, very recently, women were excluded from, from battlefield, um, service, although certainly we've had women in the military for, for decades. Um, but you know, that, that sort of claim to the presidency based upon military service has historically been limited to women. Um, and I think that we'll see, we'll see some shifts now that women have had the, um, opportunity to serve on the battlefield. Um, in that space, uh, so that's one way. This idea of the warrior hero um, laying claim to uh, pursuit of the presidency. Um, another trope that that I identify is this this notion of the self made man. That um, in addition to uh, battlefield experience and the ability of the president to um, to lead the nation based on his wartime experience, that the the self creation. Right. That I've come from nothing. I've used the benefits of this nation um, to better myself and to um, both for capital gains as well as, you know, um, personal character building gains. Um, But that because I've been able to do this, I've made my I've brought myself up from nothing that I know how to lead this nation. Um, This sort of grit and determination has been um, is part of my intrinsic character. And I'll bring that to the office. And so I think we, we see that with Andrew Jackson, um, you know, this idea of him as old Hickory, um, Theodore Roosevelt, who we know was not a self-made man, but sort of presented himself as um, that's with the Rough Riders and his exploits in the South Dakota Badlands, um, the old you know San Juan Hill. Even though he was born in a townhouse on the Lower East Side, <laughs> um, sorry,
1: and a Harvard yeah, yeah, guy.
0: Yes, yeah, <laughs> went to Harvard, all of that. Um, not the Lower East Side, I'm sorry, but but in New York City, um, uh, you know this idea of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and even most um, most modernly, Barack Obama, that, that I've overcome the challenges of my upbringing. I am the embodiment of the American dream. This is what it looks like. And this is why I have the capacity to take on this role of leader of the nation. Um, we saw that in 2016, Donald Trump who, again, born into wealth, but narratively talks about the fact that he built his real estate empire as a result of a small loan of a million dollars from his father. Um, And so, you know, I think we we see Trump supporters today even talking about, well, he he really he's going to be a great chief executive because he knows so much about business. He's built all of these things. He's a builder. And so, um, you know, not to get into too much contemporary commentary, but, but that's really, that's what makes him a, a viable candidate. And I would argue that's part of what, how he got to be in the Oval Office today.
1: Um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I, I think that you, you're, you're leaning into and explaining like the pioneering myth the creator, which also takes us back to God, the creator, which is something that you also talk about in terms of understanding the, the way that patriarchy has kind of formed the office itself. Um, and, and, you know, you go back to Filmer and you go back to some of the theorists who talk about executive power um, and connect it to the patriarchy. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean I think I, I articulate it as what I think of the beneficent patriarch, right? That we we are um we're looking for that father figure, that this rhetoric of of a, a patriarch who will both protect and guide and lead um the nation and and the citizen children towards um, towards redemption and 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 prosperity, as a father would a nuclear family, and so you know, talking about um, the natural God given leadership that was instilled within a king, um, that when we come through the revolution and we come into this space where um, where we're now, we have self leadership and we have self governance, that we're still really looking for. Um, We're still looking for that father figure. We're still looking for that patriarch. It's not inherited now. The candidates have to vie for it, but they're still demonstrating to us that they are the father figure um, and that that they're the ones that are best suited to lead us um, as a nation. And so I think we see some of that um, rhetoric trickling down a little bit in terms of um, candidates like Mitt Romney um candidates like um a little bit um George H W Bush who really presents himself as this yes as a patriarch of a large family who is is representing manhood in a little bit different way right so if we think about what masculinity looks like this is not football field and gi joe masculinity this is father knows best masculinity that um that there's really a uh, uh, um, something intrinsic and inherent to uh, a protective manhood that, that the nation needs. And so we've seen that both succeed and fail um, in presidential campaigns. Um, you know, I think Jimmy Carter probably um, had both successes and failures with that um, in terms of policy as well as um, the campaign. Um, but the, the idea that what we're looking for is the ideal man. And, and the ideal man looks like different things at different moments, given what we perceive as the needs of the nation, um, and what the electorate perceive, perceives as the needs of the nation at that, um, that given time. And so candidates are really sort of trying to figure out how their biography and how their background can fit into that. And what we see is the and it's it's certainly not. I guess this is one of my key arguments: is it's not um, partisan. It's not Republican or Democratic. We don't see this fluidity of um, trying to fit your your biography into one of these tropes as being well. All Republicans do this, or all Democrats do this. I that's uh, that's not what I. That's not my argument at all. Is that we see whether it's. Um, Whether it's Bill Clinton trying to convince us that he's a self-made man or Donald Trump that he's a self-made man, it's the same sort of narrative turn in both cases.
1: Right. And it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily um, depend on the policy disposition of the individual. It's, it's much more about how we sort of consume them as a person, as opposed to their policy preferences. Um, And so I I wanted to ask you a little bit more uh, following along this line of the patriarch and the ideal man um, to sort of get, into the next section of your analysis, which is this sort of understanding of heteronormativity and how that also is a really key component in shaping what we as consumers and voters, essentially consumers of this office and voters for this office, what we do and don't anticipate or expect with regard to the person running for it or inhabiting it. And so those of us who study gender and sexuality and popular culture use this term a lot. But can you explain to degree what it means generally, but also more precisely what it means within your exploration of the American presidency?
0: I hope so. Um, I, I think um, you know. I think we. You're right that um, normally we don't really think about the word heteronormativity, perhaps outside of a gender studies classroom or a space where we're, we're keyed into to think about sexuality as an identifying marker um, for consideration. So I think heteronormativity is this notion that um, there's. One natural way to be in the world, and that is within a reproductive sexual union between a man and a woman um, and to the exclusion of all other kinds of sexuality or participation in the culture. And so, uh, you know, so there's a man and a wife and they produce the children and decisions are made with that um, idealized family unit in mind, whether or not those are policy decisions, um, something as simple as linking health insurance to a marital partner, um, or or um, questions about, um, you know, for, for my study, obviously, like the first lady as being a a role that is um, has an administrative capacity, right? That because a woman is married to a man that is elected to uh, office, that she somehow has a role or responsibility within um, within an administration. Um, wh- even if that role is performative, right, that whether or not it's even, you know, it's often it's grown- performative. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and when it right, exactly. And when it's not performative, when we see things or you know, folks like Hillary Clinton who are trying to run the healthcare care um, efforts in 1992, that that's somehow, you know, well, there's she has a role, but but not that kind of role. Right. <laughs> like that's you know, we want her there, but we really want her doing what we want her to do um, in terms of, of femininity and hosting parties and parenting the child um, of of the leader that we've chosen. So uh, again, one of these things that it's so natural that we don't, it, or it's perceived to be so natural that we don't question it. And, and the way I'm kind of looking at it is um, as problematic, is that not only does it really proscribe roles for both women and men, um, and that there are confines of, of, you know, we must always be perceived to be straight, um, because that is the non-pathological way to be. Um, But that any gestures that might be outside of that space or nods toward um, community members and citizens that are not in that space, are um, are troubled and, and troubling. And so um, I, I think that there are, there are markers of heteronormativity that we see, not only by presenting one's spouse, whether that is a man or a woman, if you're, you know, depending on your identity, um, but also that children are centered as markers of successful um, adulthood, frankly. That we, we look at the Obama children, for instance, as um, you you know, products of a, a heterosexual union that demonstrate that Barack Obama is a good guy, or that Chelsea Clinton's role as Hillary Clinton's um, campaign surrogate and as um, the the producer of Hillary Clinton's grandchildren is somehow um, an indicator that Hillary Clinton will be um, will be a good leader, and and I think that that's you know. It, it becomes problematic when we think about what those individuals that that excludes. Right. So, you know, not, all. and I mean, I think as I sort of get to in the, the conclusion and, and I think much more work needs to be done, but um, you know, we haven't really seen gay marriage has been legal for a very short period of time. So, and we certainly haven't had any candidates um, for presidency that are out um, that identify as, as homosexual publicly that, um, that have pushed against this, this, um, trope. Um, but it's, it's, it's almost anathema to think that there would be a queer candidate, right? When we know that, um, we know that there's so much that's invested in this public, uh, performance of, of the nuclear family, so, you know, I, I do remember in tw- both in 2008 and 2016 when, when I was talking with folks about my work and and people would say, so if, if Hillary Clinton wins, what will we call Bill? You know, this I, what will we call him? And I said, well, you'll call him Mr. That's President. That's what his name
1: was before.
0: <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what his official title would be. But so troubling was this idea that we would have an inversion, right? That would would be he, would he be the first gentleman? Would he be Mister? You know, Mister Clinton? Or 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 this idea um, that we we really struggle with a way to think about um, this? And they're they're just married people, right? They're married people who one of them has this job. Um, that's very important. But but the the notion that when you, when candidates run, that their spouse and the gender performance of that spouse is also being interrogated by the electorate and uh, for for good or for bad. I mean, I think much work has been done on what an asset Michelle Obama was, for instance. Um, some folks spend a lot of time talking about what a liability Um, Melania Trump was or potentially could have been for for Donald Trump. Um, But it doesn't rare is the question or rare is the consideration that we should care what these people's partners do for or did for a living or or any of this. So I think it's one of those. um,
1: So naturalized that we don't see it anymore. And that's I mean, that's really a lot of what I I keep thinking about in reading your book was that, you know, you are, you are interrogating these expectations that we all have, but that we don't pay any attention to. And and that's why I think that the, particularly your assessment and analysis of heteronormativity, the role of the family, how the family is projected and presented, the role of the children, um, e- even, again, if they are not um, adults yet. And then we have the recent campaign with Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump occupying this very important space as surrogates for their, their, um, their parents who are running for the presidency. But what is that telling us? As you say, we don't pay any attention to the fact that this is telling us something about our expectations with regard to the procreation capacities of the folks who are running for president.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, um, we, we, we do see it uh you know, this idea that if you if if a candidate doesn't have children, there needs to be an, a reason why, um, you know, that that somehow needs to be be addressed. I mean, I, I think even one of the moments during the 2016 campaign um, that that struck me the most was during I think it was the second debate between um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And, and it was really at one of the high points of contention after the Access Hollywood video and all of these other things, when um, the moderator asked that the, the the candidates to say something nice about their opponent. And, and Hillary says, well, you know, I, I, I just, he's got these great children. He, he really has these, you know, th- I don't remember exactly, but something about how, how wonderful Ivanka and and the, the sons were. And, you know, it's, it's they do it themselves, right? Like they, they understand the value rhetorically um of of acknowledging that these children were are are there clean and tidy and and performing <laughs> their their positions professionally and all of these things and that somehow that functions as an asset for the parent um and and again really trying to sort of center um who does this exclude um and and why is it important that these candidates again both republican and democrat that they be the ideal parents Um, when, when we're not, that's not necessarily what they're, we're electing them to be. We're not necessarily choosing them based on whether or not they have four children or two, or perhaps we shouldn't. Um, but also thinking about like how this, the need to continually present yourself as a parent could impact policy choices. And, you know, if we have, we saw this frequently with Barack Obama, um, saying, you know, as a parent of two girls, I'm concerned about having, um, for instance, I'm concerned about over-the-counter access to the morning-after pill. And and the, he did get some pushback from that. And, you know, I believe the policy changed um, that eventually that was, was shifted a bit. Um, or immediately after the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012, you know, that very memorable moment when... Um, President Obama is standing at the lectern and, and, and talking about the fact that as a parent, he can't imagine what the nation is going through and what the, what the families of these, of, of those 20, I believe 20 children um, were going through. We, we, want to see, um, we want to see someone that, that looks like us and that, that feels like us about these, these issues, um, or it would seem to be the case that that's what we want. Um but I wonder sometimes how that need to occupy a space um doesn't bring a it, it it that need for a candidate to occupy the space as a parent excludes some and perhaps the performance of that parenthood shapes policy choices down the way.
1: And and I thought, you know, I think that you're accurate in understanding that as well, because I think you're right in casting a lot of the role, the sort of the the sort of uh, like symbolic role of the office is this father. Or mother, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. but certainly father. George Washington is the father of our country, um, and and so that a lot of you know what we understand then of the person in the in the office comes from our expectations with regard to what we expect from somebody who is acting as a patriarch. Um, which brings me to my next question, a bit in terms of this conception of masculinity. And manliness, which you are also sort of trying to unpack in terms of our understanding of what we're projecting onto the office. But you're you say, as you note, know, you know, we often say gender, and then that means women. But I want to know what you mean about or what you're what you're sort of talking about in the book in terms of how female candidates for president and other executive officers like governors, where we've had far fewer women than we have in the Senate or the House or in legislative bodies or on the judiciary bench. um, How do women candidates um, sort of negotiate these conceptions and expectations?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's many – Scholars have written about what we think of as the double bind and how women um, are simultaneously expected to display these attributes of leadership, which we tend to think of as um, as masculine, right? That there's aggression, there's decisiveness, there's... Um, uh, analytical approaches, as opposed to what we tend to think of as being feminine, which is compassion, um, collaboration, um, sensitivity to, to um, children and to the otherwise disadvantaged. So women candidates really um, need to f- navigate this terrain of having all of these leadership characteristics like, like decis- decisiveness, like aggression, like um, analytical approaches within a feminine frame. And so when we think about, um, you know, I, well, a lot of time we spend talking about Hillary Clinton, but, you know, we can we can look at models like Sarah Palin and Geraldine Ferraro, who were, of course, vying for the vice presidency, but that they really use their motherhood and their maternity and, and their performance of those roles as um, as demonstrations of their ability to possibly lead the nation, um, maybe one heartbeat away from the presidency. And so we see, you know, in 2008, when, when Sarah Palin um, sort of comes out of nowhere as the former governor of Alaska, um, that she has her children, on display, both at the convention and, and on the campaign. Um, and, you know, really uses this, um, her uh, role as the mother of a child with special needs as a benefit to her, right? That she says that there you will have the children, families with children with special needs will have Um, And the ally in the White House, that there will be someone who understands that there is um, someone who is embodying this role of sort of, uh, you know, the, the hockey mom, the pit bull with lipstick, this idea that she's. Aggressive, but still feminine. And it's because she's advocating for her children. And she makes this claim that first she started out as the PTA president, then she became the mayor of Wasilla, Alaska, and then goes on to the governorship. But it's all tempered within this narrative of wanting something better for her children. And again, Sarah Palin, obviously a Republican, um, still faces this challenge of, okay, well, here's the way that you're performing your leadership within within an appropriate space an appropriate feminized space, and yet we see much criticism of her um, coming from from media outlets as well as other commentators about, you know, well, you have five children, and one of them is a a newborn with special needs. Are you sure you should be running for office? Are you sure that this is what you should be doing at this time? Um, You know, and and given my research, Barack Obama had children at that point. I believe the girls were 10 and 7 or 8 no one questioned whether or not Barack Obama should be running for office given the youth of his children. There was not one claim on whether or not it was an appropriate time in his family life to be pursuing the office of the presidency. And um, and so we see that's a very minor example, but really some of these challenges that if women are pursuing uh, higher office and pursuing these sort of non-traditional nontraditional um, leadership roles, that they – they're called upon to answer how it will impact their nuclear family in ways that male candidates are not uh, called on to answer. And so, I mean, I think that it's, um, this is the other thing I get into a little bit is the idea of Hillary Clinton really being viable as a candidate at, with now that her children are adults. I, it's difficult for me to imagine what um, a more useful woman would would look like um, in terms of having young children while she's pursuing the presidency.
1: And I think there have been some studies about the fact that women often enter electoral politics um, after their children are a certain age, um, in part because of some of these sort of unconscious expectations.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is is one, you know, I believe she's the mother of five, four or five, um, and went into the office and, you know, still um, all sorts of complications in terms of talking about candidates and age. That's another book, I think. but, um, but um, right. But so exactly. So we see, we see those challenges in, in ways that, that male candidates simply are not questioned.
1: About, and, and it certainly goes to what, what we expect, but we don't really understand that we're expecting it. And, and so you, you talk a bit about the, in the book about this role of military service, and we, we, you know, you've mentioned also the generals from Washington to Grant to um, to Eisenhower, and also people like Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, um, and and Jimmy Carter and and John Kerry's military experience. And towards the end of the book, in the conclusion, you talk about sort of the decline of the requirement to some degree, the expected requirement that you have had military service. The vast majority of our elected presidents have had some sort of military experience. Um, And and I I guess one of my questions for you is why is this part really a big part of our understanding of the presidency? Um, But also, you know, we sort of now are going to have we are having a generation of veterans from our longest war in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Both of which are slightly less controversial than Vietnam was, at least towards the end of Vietnam. And how do those figure into sort of some of our expectations? And of course, I'm thinking about an image I saw recently of Tammy Duckworth, who is of a, a combat veteran um, who is disabled in combat and is now pregnant. Um so she's like crossing all kinds of boxes in opposite directions in lots of ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there are a couple of things that are just um, generational. One um, that you know we're we're still dealing with baby boomer candidates for president, um, and those folks were subject to the draft, and we don't have conscripted service anymore. And so I think that sort of shapes the way that we think about the those current, or there's younger veterans who volunteered, um, a lot of the critique of um, people like Bill Clinton, um, people like Donald Trump are that they, and and George W. Bush as well, is that not only did they not serve, but that they somehow avoided service by potentially unethical means. So um, we saw that Bill Clinton had some educational deferments Um, That we saw uh, George W. Bush, I believe it was the Texas Air Air National Guard. Um, And then Donald Trump, who, you know, I think now, you know, with his five deferments for bone spurs, right, that there were these these manipulations and sort of um, ducking of responsibility that that we saw folks like John Kerry and John McCain try and leverage up and say, well, look, I volunteered, I served this is what I did. John Kerry, of course, who becomes an anti-war um, advocate or uh, activist on his return um, from service in Vietnam. But this, um, and Al Gore, you know, I think who served as well, but didn't really seem to try and didn't make use of that in ways I think he could have in 2000. Um, but I think it's a different dichotomy between those who served as a volunteer and, um, Versus those who maybe were a little bit smarmy because they tried to duck it in different ways. Um, or at least again, that was sort of the the opposition narrative that you know bill clinton was was not only did he not serve, but that he there's a this accusation of cowardice for for trying to get out of it. Um, whereas contemporary veterans are you know those of the the these are people who volunteered. They served um, with differing levels of distinction. I think that that rhetoric is going to to change a little bit, um, just given some of those generational differences or historical differences in how people came to military service in the first place. Um, I also think that military service looks a bit different now, given technological advances. Um In that, you know, when we were talking about sending troops over in 1967, 68, 69, these were boots on the ground. And, um, you know, it was a very different level of engagement than um, piloting a drone or piloting a helicopter, not to comment on any... any difference in service, but I think it was a. I think that it's a different imaginary um, for the electorate to to consider um, what that looks like. I also think, and I don't have the statistics at hand, but because um, at this point in time, we we know that fewer people serve now than did previously um, even post nine 11, that I just think that there are fewer family, fewer individuals grow up knowing someone who served. And so the idea that it's a requirement, if you don't know anyone who served, um, in any of the armed forces, it, it, it is, um, it is less intelligible and, and less perhaps, um, less admirable. Right. So, um, I you know, I think that that's uh, I think that's a different space. I, I should sort of say I grew up in a military family and grew up around military bases, and um, everyone I knew served. and the idea that um, that people didn't was anathema until I got to my small liberal arts college and realized that other people didn't have that experience. And so I think that sort of shifts the way um, the way that we think I, I certainly wouldn't speculate on what that means um, for, for candidates coming up in 2020 or in 2024, when we have a real, um, a real group of, of service members who are vying for political office and veterans. And, um, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I really thought that Trump's, um, bone spur deferments would be a larger issue in this campaign and they were not, or seemed to, to not. So um so I'm not quite sure, honestly, what, what all of that um will come to. But I do think that there is a difference, there's a discernible difference between conscription and service and or the avoidance of service and a volunteer force.
1: And I think you're right that the 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 um the fact that many Americans do not necessarily personally know somebody who has served in combat. Um, is probably a factor as well because it's much more of an abstraction um, for many people. As a result, I mean your your you're, your components for understanding sort of gender and heteronormativity are still though this this kind of business success or electoral success, the the father component um, and some sort of service, which may also be public service. Um, and so it, it may not be strictly military service. Um, but again, I think you're right to sort of who are we going to see running for office in 20, 2020, 2024, as we have potentially more veterans coming into political Life and public life and running for office as well, um, both men and women, which is you know part of the dynamic that I think is shifting a bit as well. Um.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I just I just want to sort of add on to that and say, you know, it's military service has not enough and has never been enough on its face to get someone elected. I, one of the chapters in the book looks at the um, 1952 and 1956 candidacies of Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson. And even in 1952, um, with Eisenhower being the most respected man um, in, in the United States, according to Gallup polls and whatnot, because of his role um, as the supreme leader in Europe during World War II he still brings out Mamie Eisenhower um, and talks about, um, you know, the fact that Mamie can't afford groceries at the store because of inflation. And, and you know, that's he really, that era in 1952 um, is sort of the introduction of the, the television in Ubiquity into American homes. And he launches the Eisenhower Answers America campaign that allows him to address these domestic issues like social security, like inflation, um, like veterans benefits for those returning um, servicemen. And so he he understood in his candidacy, his campaign understood as well that just beating the Nazis wasn't enough, (laughs) even even for Dwight Eisenhower, that there still needed to be some engagement with with the domestic space.
1: And it was it was only enough for George Washington to have to have won the Revolutionary War to get him elected president, but he did have to preside over the Constitutional Convention. Right. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I I wanted to ask you a bit about you know what you do in the context of this book, as you just brought up the chapter on Eisenhower and Stevenson, but you know through the structure of this book and through your study, you're looking at the introduction also of these kind of visual images, um, and how that is also contributing to our expectations, if you will. Can you take us through sort of some of the examples you use in the book in terms of the shifts within the media itself, and how that also is playing into what our expectations are for the American presidency?
0: Sure. Um, So I I was... um I'm, I was trained as a mass communication scholar um, before I sort of branched into American studies and gender studies, and so thinking about audience analysis is really important, um, and as well as technological interventions that change over time. So, as I as I mentioned in 1952, we really see the ubiquity of television in the home. Um, you know, I think it was like 90 percent um, of American homes owned a set by I'm going to say 1956 57. And so that really shifts the, the way that political messages um, are, are shared with the electorate. Now, now, not only do we have the voices that were coming through the radio in the FDR era and Truman, um, but we see now that we actually need to be able to look at the candidate. And so much has been written about things like the 1960 debate between Nixon and Kennedy and those folks who listened on the radio thought that Nixon won and the people who watched on TV thought that Kennedy won. Um, but, but I think that it really also, there's something a little bit more sophisticated going on in terms of not only the way that we consume the visual images versus the auditory messages. Um, but the fact that these messages are in the domestic space and so When we think about a television in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, this is an instrument of communication that is in your home, in what we call the family room, where folks gather around to watch the glowing images and, and be entertained for the evening. And I think that that has certainly changed in the last 10, 15 years with the advent of mobile devices and now your communications are in your pocket all the time, and I think there's a lot of work to be done in that space. Um, but for the era I'm looking at, it really is important and shouldn't be neglected that these are um, communications that are happening in the home, um, and so particularly in the 1950s and 60s with this um, suburban domesticity that is has been well researched and and talked about by folks like Elaine Tyler May and um, this this investment in the home as a safe space. Um, in light of international um, fears and and, and idea about the the Soviet Union and nuclear annihilation and all of that, um, that candidates are creating communications that are coming in these 30 and 60 seconds um, encapsulations with jingles, with illustrations, with photos of themselves and their wives and their children, and that they're packaging those communications in much the same way that we see um, other commodities packaged, right? So whether or not it's a box of um, cornflakes or um, an Eisenhower Answers America spot, perhaps they have some similarities in ways that they might not have had previously. And so so the book really, I I look at several key, or what I've identified as key elections, um, particularly, as I said, 1952, 1956 with this, advent of the televisual campaign, um, the 1960 election between Nixon and Kennedy, which we know is very close and which we know Kennedy won, obviously. Um, but that some of those same tropes are being used, um, in terms of television as a way to represent gender performance that we see Jackie Kennedy being used, um, in campaign commercials, um, in ways that Mamie Eisenhower was not, um, Adlai Stevenson was a divorced man and didn't have a wife, but he did have a daughter, a daughter-in-law, excuse me, who, who performed some of those, um, functions, um, all the way. So, so I look at that a little bit, um, in, in terms of the way that the first lady, um, sort of emerges in that era in a different space, um, in the 1980 election, we see Nancy Reagan taking a role as um, a very vocal advocate for um, for her husband um, and sort of defending him in different ways in television spaces. Um, and, uh, and some of the more packaged uh, things that we think of in 1984, um, again, a lot of work has been done on looking at the Morning in America spot and... Uh, But but I do look a little bit more specifically at some of the gender communications that are happening there. Why is it that the white wedding um, is so important and and emblematic of what we think of mourning in America looking like um, in 1984? Um, So, uh, you know, it does change and shift in 2008 with um, with social media. Um, with mobile devices, and I think there's a lot more work to be done with how some of the same tropes um have shifted given the given the shift in um how communications happen um but there's but there's um television is still with us
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> hasn't gone just, anywhere <laughs>
0: yes it just we just consume it a little bit differently now than we did in
1: nineteen fifty six so and and i and i and some of the some of the points that you've made is that there's a lot of area that continues to need research that hasn't been explored um, as substantively as is necessary. So then my question to you is, what are you working on now? Is it a continuation of this in a different direction?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that we're still really reckoning with the Twitter presidency. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of content analysis to be done in terms of of President Trump's um, use of Twitter as a, you know, what can be done in 140 characters or now 280 characters um, that sometimes is televisual and sometimes not. But at the very bottom um, is is text. And what uh, mass media outlets, televisual outlets like CNN and MSNBC and Fox news do with those tweets. Right. So he really doesn't have to spend very much time at all in terms of production. Um, He lets the media outlets do that for him. So I think there's some content analysis to be done. Um, I'm still sort of thinking about methods and and how to go about that. Um, But what I'm really focusing on right now is the role of Ivanka Trump Um, in terms of offering us up some of the same uh, rhetorical functionality as a first lady, um, given her stepmother's limitations um both uh, as um as the third wife uh which is a, a new thing that we're thinking about, <laughs> there hasn't been a third wife before, and it's been a very long time since we've had um uh a, a foreign born First lady. Um, but, but what's interesting to me is Ivanka's role um, symbolically, rhetorically, as the first lady, as this very um, uh, traditionally beautiful and feminine factor um, in, in her father's administration, um, and how she's deployed strategically at times um, to demonstrate that her father is not a misogynist. Um, that he's not an anti-Semite uh, and that he is this beneficent patriarch um, given, given the success of both Ivanka and her brothers. And she does have a sister as well, though Tiffany Trump has, has been relatively silent, um, obscure at this point. Um, but I think, you know, that she is within the administration. She's an advisor, her Husband is an advisor on things as important as as um, middle east peace negotiations and i I think that this is an un this is unprecedented in terms of the daughter of of a president so
1: yeah it's it's certainly different from from Robert Kennedy as the attorney general um and and I think you're right because Melania is not occupying the usual space.
0: Right. I mean, and you know, I mean, it's so interesting because things change on the daily really (laughs) talking about talking about this marriage. But you know, we saw a first lady who was reluctant to move into the White House, um, didn't come in with her son, her young son until about six months into his term, um, who has had um, limited success with the platforms that she's offered up in terms of the cyberbullying and um, and really just lots of demonstrated uh, reluctance to perform that role, um, that ceremonial role as first lady. So Ivanka has been has been present, um, and again, I think a lot of this is complicated by the fact that uh, Trump's. Television show The Apprentice, which got him the most notoriety, um, given his you know forty years of public life. But Ivanka had a role in that in that television production as you know, sort of her father's right hand person within the Trump organization. And so we just sort of see some of that happening now, um, but in the presidency. And I think uh, I think I'm I'm looking at that, and I, I'm 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 I would love to. I would love to have a conclusion about what what I find. But I think I think it's clear that there are differences given past administrations. I think we have yet to see what the policy ramifications of some of those differences are. um, But I I feel that they they will be apparent.
1: Well, I hope that when you finish your work on it, um, you will come back on the new books (laughs) podcast and talk to us about it. I would love to. All right. And so my final question for you, um, where can, um, uh, an interested listener now reader buy a copy of gender heteronormativity and the American presidency that's been published by Rutledge press?
0: Uh, it would be great for them to check out the Rutledge websites. Um, it's available now. Um, and you know, I'm, I am, um, hoping to be at APSA, um, nwsa the national women's studies association as well as the american studies association and the book will be available in
1: those places as well um but so yeah super well i will certainly direct people at the apsa towards it in the book room um Aiden smith thanks so much for being on the new books and political science podcast today i'm so glad you could join me thank you lily it's my pleasure.